This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Stephen Gale. I'm delighted to welcome you to the Edinburgh International Book Festival this morning for what I think will be a very, very interesting event, uh, which is supported by the Open University and is part of the British Council Bookcase. Um, it's my great pleasure and privilege to be sharing the platform with David Mitchell. Um, and we're going to be talking about his brand new novel, The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoot. Um, the book has been long listed for the Booker Prize this year. Um, and you may be aware that uh, David is one of 10 of the 13 long listed authors who is appearing at the festival this year. Um, he was brought up in Worcestershire and studied at the University of Kent. He's published four previous novels including Number Nine, Dream, and Cloud Atlas, both of which were shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Um, he's won various awards, including the John Llewellyn Rees Award and the South Bank Show Literature Prize. Um, and in 2007, Time magazine listed him as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. <laughs> How my wife laughed. <laughs> She said, you're not even the most influential person in this house. You're number four, <laughs> number four after the washing machine. Well, it's not exact words. Um, the format for this morning is, I'm sure, one you're broadly familiar with. Um, David and I are going to have a bit of a chat about the book. He's going to read a little from the book. Uh, we'll be sure there's time for plenty of questions from the floor. And afterwards, he'll be signing copies, which will be in the signing tent, which is adjacent to this venue. Um, just the usual parish notice. Do please make sure your mobiles are either switched off or to silent. Yeah, I just checked mine as well. Yeah. Um, but first of all, if you would, again, just join me in welcoming Mr. David Mitchell. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I thought maybe just to kick off, could you tell us, was there any one particular event or image that kicked off the writing of the book? Yes, yes there was. A uh, long time ago now, in 1994, long before I was a published writer, uh, I was backpacking in the west of Japan in Nagasaki and, and uh, as usual had no money uh, and uh, the Lonely Planet said I could get a cheap lunch in Chinatown, so I thought I'll take the tram to Chinatown. However, I couldn't read the streetcar signs very well and didn't know where I was, as usual. Um, and uh, I, I got off at the wrong stop, uh, a stop called Adejima, and I didn't know what it was, hadn't heard of it, but it wasn't in Chinatown. That was, became apparent after I'd got off the streetcar. As, uh, it's too late. And um, just walked around, still trying to find a restaurant, but. Um, I'm going to give you the impression I'm just thinking about food, but um, <laughs> uh, uh, what I did find instead were just a few quite beautiful, pristine, white storehouses uh, from, obviously reconstructed because we're in Nagasaki, but, uh, but it looked very, very out of place. So I walked over to see what they were, and they were the site of a Dejima museum. Uh, hadn't heard of the place, didn't know what it was, but... Uh, um, went in and found that where I was standing was the site of the one trading post uh, that the Japanese allowed any European nation to 
um, maintained during Japan's long, long 240-odd years of uh, isolation from the world. Yes, they were isolated. Uh, it was illegal to leave. It was illegal to try and enter the country, but not quite. There was this little cat flap, this little crack in the door um, in Nagasaki. Back then, it was a man-made island linked to the mainland by a, a short bridge, probably, say, from here to the door. Um, only about a third of an acre, maybe half an acre, one long curving street, a few warehouses, and walls. So the Dutch weren't allowed off. Um, it was manned by the Dutch East Indies company, uh, although there were other European nationalities there as well, working for the company. Uh, and the only people allowed on were um, um, the translators. That was a father to some business. Um, and officially, they were the only people allowed to learn Dutch, officially. Uh, and the merchants to do business with the Dutch, and the prostitutes also to do business with the Dutch. Um, and, well, uh, it just made my little novelists on board curiosity Geiger counter go and it stayed with me and I knew I wanted to write a book about it one day uh, and 16 years later here we are long answer to a short question <laughs> it's, it's quite extraordinary it's just this man-made island and it's as you say this tiny cat flap of access um, can you just tell us a little more about how and why Japan came to be so isolated I mean this seemed it was self-willed it seems yeah. to me. Uh, it was open from 1542, I think, uh, when the Portuguese, Portuguese, Dutch, and the Spanish were there first. Uh, Portuguese and Spanish were particularly interested in proselytizing. Um, so the Jesuits and the friars, uh, the Jesuits and the um, Franciscans were busy, very successfully, converting large numbers of Japanese, which was all fine uh, until about 80, 90 years later when there was a large-scale uprising um, again in the west of the country and the authorities realised that uh, if they allowed things to continue then their hold on power was threatened um, and the, the Tokugawa shogunate in a way was, was one of the world's first great efficient totalitarian states really so uh, they began to successively um, promulgate a series of measures that uh, cut down on missionary activity and then cut down on tall white dudes wandering the countryside doing what they wanted and, and, and um, quite quickly it became Nagasaki and then quite quickly okay you're all out except the Dutch because the Dutch were able to prove that they weren't interested in converting souls and were only there for the money. <laughs> It sounds an anti-Dutch thing to say. Many of my best friends are Dutch, but, uh, but uh, yeah. Would you like to read? I would love to. Thank you. Uh, I learned a new word a few weeks ago, which is always a pleasure. Um, and the word is a uh, cute meat. Does anyone know that word? And the clue is, I learned it in Los Angeles. Uh, acute meat is, is um, it's the name of the scene in a film where the future love interests who don't know that they will be a kind of a love interest meet. So it's where you meet the cute. It's acute meat. Uh, how, what a pleasure to disseminate new vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, this is the cute meat in my novel. And it's after lunch on the 1st of August, 1799. The cogs and levers of time swell and buckle in the heat. In the stewed gloom, Jacob hears almost the sugar in its crates hissing into fused lumps. Come auction day, it shall be sold to the spice merchants for a pittance, or else, as well they know, it must be returned to the Shenandoah's hold for a profitless return back to the warehouses of Batavia. Batavia, uh, modern day in Jakarta, and it was the center of Dutch operations in the Far East. Hello, there's a small person here. Hello, what's your name? He's very, very welcome, and he can make as much noise as he wants. And you mustn't be embarrassed. It's a, it's a friendly Edinburgh. No, don't, 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 don't. Oh. Well, I take it as a compliment. So. How old is he? Oh, bless. Bless. Hello. The clerk drains his cup of green tea. The bitter dregs make him wince and amplify his headache, but sharpen his wits. On a bed of clove crates and hemp and sacking, Hanzabulo lies asleep. A slug trail of mucus descends from his nostril to his rocky Adam's apple. The scratch of Jacob's quill is joined by a not dissimilar noise from a rafter. It is a rhythmic scratting, soon overlain by a tiny soaring squeak. A he-rat, the young man realizes, mounting his she-rat. I don't actually know what rats sound like when they have sex, because not even Wikipedia can give you that information, but uh, it was just a guess. I, I, I don't kind of hide out in places where rats have sex. <laughs> I do do research, but I'm not that thorough. <laughs> Listening, he becomes enwrapped by memories of women's bodies. They're not, these are not memories he is proud of, nor ones he ever discusses. And, I dishonour Anna, Jacob thinks, by dwelling on such things. But the images dwell on him and thicken his blood like arrowroot. Concentrate, you donkey, the clerk orders himself, on the job at hand. Which is actually a phrase my American proofreader said, a job at hand? No, 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 no. So in the American edition, that line's different. Uh, with difficulty, he returns to his pursuit of the 50 Rix dollars, fleeing through thickets of forged receipts found in one of Daniel Snitka's boots. He tries to pour more tea into his cup, but the pot is now empty. He calls out, Anzabulo! The boy does not stir. The rutting rats have fallen silent. Hi! Long seconds later, the boy jolts upright. Mr. Dazutop! Jacob raises his ink-smudged cup. Fetch more tea, please, Anzabulo. Oh, by Thomas. Oh. He's very welcome back when he's calmed down a bit. It's fine. Hansabola squints and rubs his head and blurts, Huh? More tea, please. Jacob waggles his teapot. Ocha. Hansabola sighs and heaves himself up and takes the teapot and plods away. Jacob sharpens his quill, but within moments his head is drooping. I do this all the time, it makes it really hard at readings. Uh, between my little scenelets, there's a gap, uh, and you can't kind of get the, uh, and the gap just means an indeterminate, an indeterminate amount of time passes, but you can't get that over to reading without just saying gap, which <laughs> makes me look like I'm advertising a well-known uh, high street retailer, but gap with a small g. A hunchback dwarf stands 
in the white glare of Boney Alley. Gripped in his hairy hand is, 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 is a club? No, no, it's a long joint of bony, blooded pork. Jacob lifts his heavy head and his stiff neck cricks. The hunchback enters the warehouse, grunting and snuffling. The joint of pork is, in fact, an amputated shin with ankle and foot still attached. Nor is the hunchback a hunchback. It is William Pitt, the ape of Dejima. Jacob jumps up and bangs his knee and the pain is prismatic. William, William Pitt clambers up a tower of crates with his bloody prize. Well, how in God's name? Jacob rubs his kneecap. How did you come by such a thing? There's no reply but the calm and steady breathing of the sea. And Jacob remembers, Dr. Marinus was summoned to the ship yesterday when an Estonian seaman's foot had been crushed by a fallen crate. Gangrenous wounds boiling faster than milk in a Japanese August, the doctor prescribed the knife. The surgery is being performed today in the hospital, so his four students and some local scholars may watch the procedure. And however improbably, William Pitt must have forced an entry and stolen the limb, for what other explanation is there? Now a second figure, moment... <coughs> I mean, blinded by the warehouse darkness, enters. His willowy chest is heaving with exertion. His blue kimono is covered with an artisan's apron, spattered dark, and strands of hair have escaped from the headscarf that half conceals the right side of his face. Only when he steps into the shaft of light falling from the high window does Jacob see that the pursuer is a young woman. Apart from the washerwomen and a few aunts who serve at the Interpreter's Guild, the only women permitted through the land gates are prostitutes who are hired for a night, or wives who stay under the roofs of the better-paid officers for longer periods. These costly courtesans are attended by a maid. Jacob's best guess is that the visitor is one such companion who wrestled with William Pitt for the stolen limb, failed to prize it from his grasp, and chased the ape into the warehouse. Voices, Dutch, Japanese, Malay, clatter down Long Street from the hospital. The doorways frame their outlines, brief as blinks, running down Boney Alley. Jacob sifts his meagre Japanese vocabulary for any suitable items. When she notices the red-haired, green-eyed foreigner, she gasps with alarm. Oh, miss, implores Jacob in Dutch. I, 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 oh, please don't worry. I, the woman studies him and concludes that he's not much of a threat. Bad monkey, she regains her composure. Steel foot. He nods at this and then realises, you speak some Dutch, miss. Her shrug replies, a little. She says, bad monkey, enter here. Oh, aye, aye, the hairy devil's up there. Jacob indicates William Pitt upon his crates. And wanting to impress the woman, he strides over. William Pitt, unhand that leg. Give it to me. Give. The ape places the leg at his side, grips his rhubarb pink penis and twangs it like a harpist in a madhouse, cackling through bared teeth. Jacob fears for his visitor's modesty, but she turns aside to hide her laughter, and in doing so, reveals a burn covering much of the left side of her face. It is dark and blotched and close up, very conspicuous. How can a courtesan's maid, Jacob wonders, earn a living with a disfigurement like that? Too late, he is aware that she is watching him gawp. She pushes back her headscarf and thrusts her cheek towards Jacob. There, this gesture declares, you drink your fill. I, Jacob is mortified, you must please forgive my rudeness, miss. I... Fearing she doesn't understand, he holds a deep bow for the count of five. 
The woman reties her headscarf and directs her attention to William Pitt. Ignoring Jacob completely, she addresses the ape in lilting Japanese. The thief hugs the leg like a motherless daughter hugs a doll. Determined to cut a better figure, Jacob approaches the tower of crates. He jumps onto an adjacent chest. Now you listen to me, you flea-bitten slave. A warm and liquid whiplash, smelling of roast beef, flays his cheek. And in an effort to, defle to deflect the warm stream, he loses his balance, tumbles off the chest, heels over arse, and lands on the beaten earth. Mortification, thinks Jacob as the pain eases, requires at least a little pride. The woman is leaning against Hans Borlo's improvised cot. But I have no pride left, for I, I am pissed upon by William Pitt. <laughs> she is dabbing her eyes and shivering with near-silent laughter. Anna laughs that way, Jacob thinks. Anna laughs that very way. Anna's his uh, fiancée back in Zealand, uh, for whom he has agreed to come out to the Far East uh, to work for five years for the company in order to raise a suitable dowry to reassure the putative prospective future father-in-law that uh, he would be able to keep his daughter in the manner to which she's become customer, which is the longest sentence I've ever said at a festival. <laughs> I sorry, she inhales deeply and her lips twitch. Excuse my lewdness, rudeness, miss. He goes to the water pail, rude, with an R. Rudeness, she repeats, with an R. It is nothing funny. Jacob washes his face, but to rinse the monkey urine from his second best linen shirt, he must first remove it, and to do so here is out of the question. You wish, she hunts in a sleeve pocket before taking out a closed fan and putting it on a crate of raw sugar, before producing a square of paper. You wish, white face? Most kind. Jacob takes it and dabs his brow and cheeks. Trade with monkey, she suggests. Trade thing for leg. Jacob gives the idea it's due. Well, the beast is a slave to tobacco. Tobacco, she claps her hands once in resolve. You have? Jacob hands her the last of his Javanese leaf in a leather pouch, and she dangles the bait from a broom head level with William Pitt's eerie. The ape reaches out. The woman sways it away, mumbling entreaties before William Pitt lets go of the leg to seize his new prize. The limb thumps to earth and stops dead at the woman's foot. She gives Jacob a glance of triumph and discards the broom and takes up the amputated limb as casually as a farmhand picking up a turnip. His hat through bone pokes through the bloody sheath and its toes are grubby. Up above, the casement rattles. William Pitt has escaped through the window with his bounty over the roofs of Long Street. A tobacco is loose, sir, says the woman. Very sorry. Oh, no matter, miss. You have your leg back. Well, not your leg, but... Shouted questions and answers fly up and down Boney Alley. Jacob and his visitor take a couple of steps back from each other. Forgive me, miss, but uh, are you a courtesan's maid? Courtesan's maid, or? This baffles her. What is? Uh, uh, Jacob grasps for a substitute word. Uh, a whore's helper? She lays the limb on a square of cloth. Why horse need helper? <laughs> a guard appears in the doorway. He sees the Dutchman, the young woman, and the lost foot, and he grins and shouts into Boney Alley, and within moments, more guards, inspectors, and officials arrive, followed by Deputy Van Cleef, then Dejima's strutting constable, Akosugi, Marinus's assistant, Ilatu, his apron as bloodied as the burnt woman's, 
Ari Klot and a Japanese merchant with darting eyes, several scholars, and Kon Toomey are carrying his carpenter's rule and asking Jacob in English, what's that feckin' smell about you, man? He's actually Irish, but I can't do an Irish accent, so I kind of slipped into Scottish because I've been in the States and didn't mind. I, I, oh, I apologise for my terrible Scottish accent and please let me get out alive afterwards. <laughs> Jacob remembers his half-restored ledger on the table, wide open for all to see. Hastily, he conceals it, just as four youths arrive, each with shaven heads of medical disciples and aprons like the burnt woman's, and commence to fire questions at her. The clerk guesses these are Dr. Marinus's students, and soon the intruders let the woman recount her story. She indicates the Tower of Crates where William Pitt clambered up and now gestures towards Jacob, who blushes as 20 or 30 heads look his way. She speaks her own language with quiet self-possession. The clerk awaits the hilarity that must greet his dousing in ape piss, but she omits the episode, it seems, and her narrative ends with nods of approval. Toomey leaves with the Estonian's limb to fashion a wooden substitute of the same length. I saw you, Van Clayf snatches a guard's sleeve. You damned thief! A shower of bright red nutmeg berries spills across the floor. Bart Fisher, show these blasted robbers out of our warehouse. The deputy makes herding motions towards the door, shouting, Out! Out! Grote, frisk whoever looks suspicious. Aye, just as they frisk us. Dezoot, watch our merchandise, or it'll sprout legs and walk. Jacob stands on a crate, the better to survey the departing visitors. He sees the burnt maid step into a sunlit alley, assisting a frail scholar. Contrary to his expectation, she turns and waves her hand. Jacob is delighted by this secret acknowledgement and waves back. And no, he sees, she's just sheltering her eyes from the sun. Yawning, Hansabola enters, carrying a pot of tea. And you didn't even ask her name, Jacob realises. Jacob the bonehead. He notices that she left behind the closed fan on the crate of raw sugar. Storm-faced Van Cleef leaves last, pushing past Hansabola, who stands at the threshold, holding the pot of tea. Ah, threshold holding. That's a mistake, isn't it? Who stands at the threshold with his pot of tea. <laughs> and Hansabula asks, thing happen? I'll stop that one there, guys. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to do one more, which is my bête noire for a stammering, um, introverted English novelist. But... Um, this is just a page I put it towards the end. It's a kind of a description of Nagasaki. It's a view uh, being seen by the magistrate who shortly after this scene, without putting any spoilers, um, he has reason to believe that he might not be seeing this view again. Uh, it's just an ordinary, I feel a bit like a magician presenting a trick here, but uh, it's just an ordinary block of text, ladies and gentlemen, but um, when it's read aloud, hopefully it takes out a, it takes on a different kind of a life, I hope. Gulls wheel through spokes of sunlight over gracious roofs and dowdy thatch, snatching entrails at the marketplace and escaping over cloistered gardens, spike-topped walls and treble-bolted doors. Gulls alight on whitewashed gables, creaking pagodas and dung-ripe stables circle over towers and cavernous bells and over hidden squares where urns of urine sit by covered wells, watched by mule drivers, mules and wolf-snouted dogs, and ignored by hunchbacked makers of clogs, 
They gather speed up the stoned in Nakashima River and fly beneath the arches of its bridges, glimpsed from kitchen doors, watched by farmers walking stony ridges. Gulls fly through clouds of steam from laundry's vats, over kites and threading the corpses of cats, over scholars glimpsing truth in fragile patterns, over bathhouse adulterers, heartbroken slattens, fishwives dismembering lobsters and crabs, their husbands gutting mackerel on slabs, woodcutters' sons sharpening axes, candle makers rolling waxes, flint-eyed officials milking taxes, etoliate lacquerers, mottled skin dyers, imprecise soothsayers, unblinking liars, weavers of mats, cutters of rushes, ink licked calligraphers dipping brushes, booksellers ruined by unsold books, ladies-in-waiting, tasters, dressers, filching page boys, runny-nosed cooks, sunless attic nooks where seamstresses prick calloused fingers, limping malingerers, swineherds, swindlers, lip-chewed debtors rich in excuses, herd-it-all creditors tightening nooses, prisoners haunted by happier lives and ageing rakes by other men's wives. Skeletal tutors goaded to fits, firemen turned looters when occasion permits, tongue-tied witnesses, purchased judges, mothers-in-law nurturing briars and grudges, druggists grinding powders with mortars, a palanquins carrying not-yet-wed daughters, silent nuns, nine-year-old whores, the once were beautiful gnawed by sores, statues of Jizo anointed with poses, Syphilitic sneezing through rotted off noses, potters, barbers, hawkers of oil, tanners, cutlers, carters of night soil, gatekeepers, beekeepers, blacksmiths and drapers, torturers, wet nurses, perjurers, cut purses, the newborn, the growing, the strong world and pliant, the ailing and the dying and the weak and the defiant. Over the roof of a painter withdrawn first from the world and then his family and down into a masterpiece that has, in the end, withdrawn from its creator and around again where their flight began, over the balcony of the room of the last chrysanthemum, where a puddle from last night's rain is evaporating, a puddle in which the magistrate observes the blurred reflections of gulls wheeling through spokes of sunlight. This world, he thinks, contains just one masterpiece, and that is itself. Thank you, guys. Thank you. David, thank you very much. Um, thank you. We spoke just now, we were talking about the isolation of Japan at this time. And mm -hmm. one of the characters says at one point, Japan, I think, is a country that doesn't want to be, to be understood. Now, at the beginning of the book, Jacob is a new arrival at Dejima. And it seems to me that we learn about the sort of social order that he's coming into, that he's, as he learns about it, eventually he does cross the bridge and go in onto the mainland and so on. But it struck me that, also, we're learning about the sort of social and cultural codes that he lives by. He's a very religious man. For example, he has his psalter hidden because they're forbidden and so on. Could you just talk a little about the, the differences in sort of class and rank between the two societies? Oh, that's a big one, Stephen. Uh, the differences uh, between class and rank within each society yeah. or the differences between them? Between them. Um, well, of course, the Netherlands is more democratic. Uh, you have some recourse to law. With Japan, we're talking about a Confucian hierarchical uh, society, whereas uh, a peasant, if you use the wrong verb ending, you could literally lose your head on the spot. 
because you'd failed to put an honorific verb ending when speaking to a, a person of high rank, a, a, a samurai. Um, the Dutch didn't quite have to worry about that. Uh, um, and of course, within Japan, we have the male hierarchy, and underneath that, we have the female hierarchy, uh, who also had their own verb endings and, and, and modes of speech. Um, Dejima would have, uh, like all sort of edge of empire, frontier, trading post, garrison, milieus. Milieus, that sounds awful. Milieu is okay, but milieus, uh, ugh. Um, but um, these, um, these micro worlds. Um, nice, uh, educated, um, upper-class people, on the whole, they didn't go there because you had about a four in ten chance of succumbing to malaria within a fortnight of arriving in Java. It's a big risk. Uh, only six in ten would have come back, perhaps with uh, fortune, then to attain some kind of social mobility. But uh, on the whole, uh, the educated didn't take that lottery, you know? Uh, so, so, yeah, um, the Dutch and the Europeans on Dejima would have been rough around the edges and, uh, and uh, uh, in it for themselves. And this makes Jacob something of a fish out of water there, really. He's an honest, pious man in a nest of self-interested vipers, uh, which actually sounds very, it's quite a contemporary theme uh, in a way, but uh, I haven't done justice to your question. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. The, the two, the, Japan is a long way away for these people, for these Europeans. Um, I mean, a letter from his sister takes two years or something to, to arrive and so on and so forth. But I was very, st one, of the, one of the many sort of achievements of the novel, it seemed to me, is the way you, you present this sense of, of distance from the point of view of the characters. What I mean by that is, to give an, again, without too many spoilers, but to give an example, there's a scene where a father leaves Nagasaki to sail back to the Netherlands and leaves his son behind. And there's a sort of, this isn't a big deal, there's a sort of stoical acceptance on his part that, well, it's a long way, I just won't see him again. Could you talk a bit more about how you're sort of, we're learning about the, cent the time and the place through, through character? Um, it's not so much I thought this up as a clever wheeze, it seemed no. to be the only possible vehicle to, to convey to the yeah. reader uh, what what that world was like um, without providing essays. Yeah. Uh, you do all this research, but then of course you do have to smuggle it out to the reader, otherwise you have god-awful sentences like, well, Your Honour, would you like the expensive but brightly lit sperm whale oil lantern on this evening, or would you prefer the less expensive but smokier pig lard candles? Yeah. I have to know all of that, because uh, yeah. otherwise I can't seems, but then you, have to hide nine-tenths of it beneath the waterline, which is just a fancy way of saying you don't put it in. Uh, <laughs> but, but you do have to know, uh, yeah. otherwise it'll be wrong, yeah. and that's no good. Um, I was talking about smuggling through information. So with historical fiction, or with, with fiction where you've done a lot of research, it, it's, it's, all, it's all about smuggling. Yes. And uh, one perhaps the only halfway decent way of doing that smuggling without being caught is to um, alter what is, 
what is being taken for granted. I think whatever one culture or one subculture takes for granted, that is its difference. Yeah. Uh, what it takes for granted about uh, aspirations, about hopes, uh, uh, the whole periodic table of human life, sort of love, death, friendship, money, God, sex, work, the rest of it. Uh, what is taken for granted about these things, that's what marks it out. That's what makes um, uh, 200 year ago uh, dwellers of this uh, fair city of Edinburgh different to people here now, born here in 2010. What young Thomas over there, or out there now, will be taking for granted in 30 years' time. That, what, that will be what makes his generation different to ours. So, well, this is true. Uh, it's also very useful uh, because um, by having Jacob taking it for granted that there, well, that there is an afterlife uh, and if you behave in a certain way, you have a passport to it. And if you don't, then away you go. Um, into eternal nothingness at best. By showing him taking it for granted, I can make him real, I can yes. make the times real, uh, and hopefully in a not too blatantly didactic way, I can show the reader what makes this world distinct from our world. And that makes, that makes historical fiction work. When you don't do that, it doesn't. It just feels like a, a cheaply produced costume drama for Channel 5. Ooh. Uh, I don't know where that came. I quite like uh, they do good things for kids. Sorry, Jack. Um, oh, they'll hate me. They'll do a sort of the real David Mitchell program now, and that will be the end of me. Uh, but you know, um, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's, it, it, it's, it's such a vivid world that you've created, and it, 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 oh, it, because we are, you know, all the time we these things that we oh that we would you know we would normally take for granted of being questioned, and that's what's so fantastic. Thank you. I do my best, and it's my job. Thank you. Um, Another, you mentioned earlier when you were reading about the gaps in the, um, in the, on the body of the text itself. Um, and another thing that you use fantastically well, it seems to me, is sometimes there's a, just a slight jump in time. For example, there's a, there's a scene in which a character is asked to sign a document um, and refuses to do so and tears it into two and then into four. So the, the way it runs is the document was in his hand and then the next sentence is it was in two pieces. So there's that little jump in time, which I think we've, so we fill in the action of it being torn, it seems to me. Could you just talk a little more? Because there were a few of these, it's fantastic sort of little way you use that. Oh, well, thank you very much. I'll, uh, I'm secretly recording this on my mobile phone and when I have bad days, I'll replay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, firstly, it's an economy of style, uh, if, if it's torn. If it is in two pieces, then you save yourself having to write a sentence, he tore it in two pieces, yes. because here it is, it's in two pieces. Yes. Uh, and when you got 550, uh, the first manuscript was about 600 pages, it's about a sixth too, it's just a bit too long, and um, so I was after any way to make it leaner, fitter book. Um, secondly, it's a bit like that when you're extremely emotional. Um, this is a line from an A.S. Byatt novel, but someone becomes so angry that the room wobbles. Isn't that brilliant? It's just like that. And yeah. It's sort of, oh, uh, a certain 
it's, it's a proverbially, proverbially absurd word, but, but the word is discombobulation. And, and to discombobulate, uh, to show discombobulate, to show, I'm all discombobulated now, so. to show discombobulation, uh, you can screw up your sentence, you can discombobulate your sentence, you, 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 you do some sort of, something that's wrong that doesn't work, and you can sort of represent how you feel by replicating it in a sentence. So, um, style imitates content there. It comes from film. Uh, film makers, film editors work this out. Uh, and you can also do the one where the scene, um, you know, uh, the example for some reason always comes into my head when I try to grope for a random example is that film by Mike Lee, Topsy Turvy, where the uh, lyricist is, um, his wife is n nagging at him to take them to the, uh, as a sort of um, an exhibition of nations going on in Europe. He's saying, absolutely not. I'm having nothing to do with it. I'm not interested in the world. I'm not interested in Japan. I'm not going. And then cut. And then the very next scene, there's just a bowl of green tea. And, you know, <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah. That's in the, for the, the whole scene where it's, oh, go on, you take, oh, what's he doing? Come on, we're going, I've decided, we're going to, forget all of that. It's just there. It's, it's there. It's invisible. It's there and it's not there. It's between those cuts and it's sort of just in the green tea. Yeah. Just beautiful work. And uh, 19th century novelists, I'm chancing my arm here because I'm in a room full of more widely read people than myself, I think. But uh, on the whole, 19th century people, uh, writers didn't do that. Uh, because film hadn't worked that out for them. But yeah. if you're writing from the 1950s, 1960s onwards, then I have a completely unprovable theory that if you could sort of take the mean, median, average novelist's mean, median, average imagination and compare it in 2010 and, and compare that to the mean, median, average imagination from 1850, uh, it would be working somewhat differently, largely because of film. Unprovable theory. Uh, you cannot compare imaginations like that, but you can compare the books. Uh, you take some questions? With pleasure, with pleasure. Very happy to take some questions. Uh, we've got colleagues with radio mics. It's very helpful if you let them come to you so that everybody else can hear the question. Yeah. There's a brave hand up there right first. Up there. Hello? Oh, you have to wait, sorry. Don't let me be a bad influence. Hi, I, I, I finished reading your book just before breakfast this morning. And Thank stuff. you. I, I loved it. It was great. But, but, I mean, as a, immediately afterwards, I threw up my <laughs> shovel leg. <laughs> I then dragged my wife along to, to this. But, um, but um, a bit su a surprisingly orthodox book for the David Mitchell I read. And, and I wanted to ask first if... if um, and that's not a criticism. Mm. I, mean, you know, I, I like a good, um, fantastically researched historical um, novel as this one was. Um, but are you going back, is the experimental David Mitchell, is that what we're going to see coming back with your next book? And secondly, a surprisingly clumsy title, um, and, and I couldn't work out what right, it means. Mate, <laughs> <laughs> snappy title, David Mitchell, comes up like with something. I look a writer, but underneath the shirt, it's <laughs> biceps of steel. Great book, uh, bad title, I think that's what I'm saying. <laughs> can, can you explain it, what, A Thousand Autumns, eh? Sure. Uh, okay. Uh, thank you for that thinly veiled. <laughs> but, um, I, I never try to be experimental or not experimental. And even the phrase, I mean, I, I'm going to be seeing um, uh, 
a David Shields and Eli Horowitz event leader. But um, um, yeah, it's, I don't try to be experimental or not. It's, it's, it's just a case of, um, uh, and even the phrase experimental novel, I've got a slight allergy to it, uh, even though I don't know what other word I would use. But it's just a case of me knowing there's a book in here somewhere and it's swimming about and, and the structure and the form of the novel is just the best way I can devise at any one time to try and get that book out to be the best vehicle for, for the novel I foggily want to write. Um, and as it happened in this case, um, a relatively orthodox structure, I tried wackier versions beforehand but they didn't work and I spent 18 months doing that and in the meantime I'd spent the advance and my editor was getting anxious and uh, and that wasn't working so this um, I, I, I rather reluctantly not reluctantly but uh, it was the only way I could think of to make the book work uh, so yeah it's it, it's not that mm, I haven't been experimental in it for a while I'll do something wacky with the next book not at all um, Slightly less orthodox than you think, actually. Three parts, uh, 13 chapters each. Uh, it's all to do with narrative helmets. Uh, I'm kind of thinking of a helmet which sits on one head with uh, digital, the camera walking around that records everything, with a spike going into the brain that reads the thoughts of that head but no one else's head. So that's how I've kind of, those, that's the, the constitution I gave for my third person narrators, which is the first time I've done a book uh, this length in the third person. Um, three sections. The first chapter in each one has a narrative head that is not then used in the rest of that section. So it's uh, Olito in the first section, um, the hidden Christian in the second section, the woman up on the mountain, and it's slave, uh, the slave way in the third section. Then in the first section, I have one narrative head, Jacob. Second section, I have two narrative heads. Olito and Uzayim on the translator. At third section, three narrative heads, Jacob, uh, the English captain, and the magistrate. So it kind of goes from being a t -t -t one-stroke engine to a two-stroke engine to a So it kind of accelerates as it goes through. So a bit fancier than you thought, huh? <laughs> as for the title, um, as for the title, blind, I, I didn't know what to call this. First time it's ever happened, I had the title crisis. Uh, it was Friday, spoke to my agent, he was going to Frankfurt on the Mondays. What's it called? I'm going to try and sell this thing and it hasn't got a name, it won't do now. Uh, okay, okay, I'll think of something other. And, and, and I had long conversations with a friend in London who was speaking from 8 o'clock to midnight twice, he'd read most of it and was up to speed with it. Oh, what do we call it? What do we call it? What do we call it? I wanted something that's English and Dutch and Japanese in the title. Um, that was one thing I wanted, which is quite a tall order in the first place. Uh, I thought I thought of loads of rubbish titles and uh, democratically sort of floated them to a few people I know. And everyone's an expert on why a title is a pile of pants, but no one's any good at saying, "Well, what you should call it is this." Oh, thank. You. That part two never happened. So. Uh, um, I was desperate, and it sounds like a sort of a made-yuppie festival story, but really, I, I, uh, uh, Noel Redding, the bass guitarist from the Jimi Hendrix Experience, used to live just over the field from me, 
in Ardfield in uh, West Cork. And uh, uh, he's, he died nine, ten years ago. But uh, I went for a walk having to get a title. So I'm, I don't believe really in the continuation of the soul afterlife. But I had a go. I prayed to Noel Redding. And uh, <laughs> about 100 paces on, this just popped into my head, The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoot. Uh, it had always been brewing in there. Maybe Noel just sort of elbowed it out a bit. But Thousand Autumns is, um, is a classical, you know, uh, we talk about the, this scepter dial or the Emerald Isle of Island. In classical Japanese poetry, uh, the land of a thousand autumns is a fancy w word for Japan. Uh, Jacob de Zoot, obviously this weird Dutch name. That's a Dutch part taken care of. And, well, it's in English, so that's the <laughs> English. <laughs> uh, and... And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of sad. It's perpetually autumn, which is a beautiful time of year, but it's sort of stuck like Groundhog Day. It sort of never, never stops. And this sort of melancholic mood just, just reached the end of it, and then immediately it starts again. And it just felt right. And the thousand autumn, it kind of scans well. They can imagine a big black rapper kind of using it successfully in a rhyming couplet um so yeah and uh, and uh, and then when my agent phoned on monday it's called a thousand autumns of jacob de zoot fine like it we'll go with that and then <laughs> it's gone thank you for your question lady at the front row talking about names why did you choose william pitt for a monkey uh right uh he wasn't scottish was he William Pitt, no, 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 good. Um, <laughs> the, um, well, uh, the Dutch were at war with the British. Uh, they just history sort of nudged the administration at that point uh, uh, onto the side of revolutionary France, then later Napoleonic France, and, um, and um, it seemed a witty insult to some sailor in Dejman. I actually wrote the scene, but it never got into the book, uh, where he'd call the monkey... William Pitt, because it's sort of amusing to insult your enemies by comparing their leader to 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 a hairy simian. Uh, great short question, uh, short answer for that one. Uh, happy? <laughs> great, thank you. Right up at the back there. Uh, hello, I hello. live in Japan and I'm hey. uh, actually researching uh, a book about hidden Christians at the oh, moment, right, so I'm right, very right, interested right. in oh, Dejima. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'm inter I got two, one's a very short question. Uh, why do you think the Dutch succeeded and the English didn't? Because uh, the English had the factory at Hirado, which didn't succeed. Yeah. And the other question is, uh, why... Uh, do you think the Japanese were so virulently anti-Christian? And um, what do you think it was in Christianity that was so hostile to Japanese values? Sure, sure. Uh, Thank you. No, 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 thanks for your question. Um, I hope my answers don't get too nerdy, but um, it's well described in... in, in, in oh, what's his name? Um, who's the guy who writes really good popular history books? Um, Nathaniel's nut, but yeah, thank you. And uh, who's the author of that? It's, yeah, it's Giles Milton. Thank you. I love Edinburgh. You just throw it out. It's a, it's a human internet here. Yeah, just human Wikipedia. In fact, uh, if anyone can tell me about rats later, then. then <laughs> uh, 
But, yeah, uh, <laughs> Samurai William by Giles uh, Milton. Uh, yeah, uh, as you say, um, the Dutch were able to convince the Japanese authorities that it was the Catholics making all this trouble in the country, and if they were allowed Protestant nations in, they wouldn't Christianise the country or try to. That, um, so Protestants good, Catholics bad. Uh, as you say, the Dutch uh, and the English were there. Uh, and according to Giles Milton, the English couldn't make it pay because they spent all the money on women. <laughs> really, uh, that's where it went. They got overdrawn and the English East Indies Company, or the equivalent, uh, were their, their, their investors were, for some strange reason, unwilling to give strangers their money to go and spend it in brothels on the far side of the world. Uh, um, so, so, so that's uh, his explanation for that, and I've got no reason to doubt him. Um, and, uh, well, you'll know about the, uh, the rising at Shimabala, wasn't it? Uh, just around the Cape from Nagasaki. Um, the last big military threat to the, the Tokugawa powers, that was it. Uh, they beat the first army that was sent out to get them. Um, according to other researchers, it was really just an agrarian uprising for the usual reasons. The serfs were being overtaxed and uh, up to the point where they had nothing to lose by turning on their masters. However, it um, quickly acquired the... Um, the, uh, uh, sort of the Christian emblems, and uh, it was certainly interpreted by Edo as a Christian uprising. Um, they sent the second army down, uh, and the Christians, the Christians, uh, the the peasant Christians were besieged at, in Shimabala Castle, um, and the Dutch kind of proved their l loyalty to Edo in a way by. L lending them the ship and bombarding sort of fellow Christians from the sea uh, and uh, kind of earned enough brownie points just by that act to stay in business for the next 240 years. Uh, that's alluded to, by the way, in, um, by Jonathan Swift in Gulliver's Travels, that and the, uh, uh, the trampling of the image of Christ that uh, all locals had to do again for the next 240 years to prove that they uh, weren't hidden Christians. Obviously didn't work so well, but uh, it's, uh, every New Year's Day they had to register with the local temple and do that. I think kind of, so, so yeah, there's um, a good case for the prosecution against allowing Christians to stay in Japan, uh, that uprising itself. More broadly, probably because it taught power you really need to respect is this guy who lives in Rome uh, and not your masters in Edo. And who's going to stand for that? Would you? And, uh, uh, so I think, uh, I think there's a, a practical political reason and, 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 and this more sort of question of this reason based on religious loyalty, in my humble opinion. Good luck with the book. There's a gentleman over there. Hi. Um, I think I only noticed when you read that glorious second passage. Um, oh, it, it is how that the book feels to me to be about how do you know world when you must know it from both the outside and the inside in order to know it at all. 
And then, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of invaded at the moment with images of um, barriers and conduits and walls that are defences, but also securities that have to be broken down and sense of miscomprehension between all those different worlds. I mean, can you, do you need to have the whole world in order to have an atlas or would you need to have an atlas that described even a very small world that would add interior bits to it like a mountain monastery or uh, where the people within it don't know the codes that actually regulate their own life yeah. until you've began to break through them with some external knowledge and again the boundaries of the, the edges of the trading worlds and I mean those are the kind of images that seem to be staying with me and not sticking really. <laughs> Your mind must be an interesting place, sir. Uh, <laughs> um, it's paradoxical business. Yes, you have to know everything, or at least as much as you can find out. Uh, then, as I suggested earlier, it will kill your fiction if you put all of that in. Uh, so you must leave a lot out, even though you have to know it. Also, you need blank spaces, because then we're not in the fiction business, writing histories and social histories, religious histories, biographies, and these are noble disciplines, and I'm glad that other people do them, but it's not what I'm good at. Um, so, I, I, in a way, I think in terms of stem cells, you need a few brilliant stem cells that just make your curiosity ache to grow them and to develop them into sort of organs, it's quite a Frankensteinian metaphor on its way here folks, but you grow the organs and then assemble them into a large organism. Um, so, there's a, so yeah, there's a mountain monastery organism, uh, organ, that, 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 and that grew from a few things I read about Shinto, but on the whole I made it up. Uh, but, um, but bits and pieces from other books, from some a bit of Ursula Le Guin even is in there, and, and, and just bits. Uh, so they kind of grow like that. Then there's a more a political organ down in uh, Nagasaki, and, and you just sort of need to know how those systems worked. Uh, yeah, yeah, weird stuff. You research and research and research until the point where you begin to suspect that all you're doing is filling moleskin notebooks up with facts and research stuff and then you, and then when you begin to suspect that that means you are and it's a time to stop and get back to actually using what you have and in a way bring up the drawbridge to more research otherwise it takes 12 years to write a book and not four yeah um uh Translation is both a theme in the book and, and you know, in, in a way, it's a theme in my life and I derive about a third of my income from it. So it would be very hypocritical of me here to say, no, 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 you can't. No. But uh, um, the fact was the Japanese couldn't really speak Dutch very well. The Dutch, uh, this, this the colonial riffraff didn't bother speaking Japanese very well. There were very, very few proto-anthropologists who went out there and became interested until actually the end of the 18th century when the Enlightenment was beginning to get curious about far reaches of the globe. 
Uh, and so in an earlier version of the book, I said, this is no good. They can't not understand each other. How can I do dialogue if they can't understand each other? They'll be forever guessing it. That would be absurd. So I developed all sorts of weird backstories whereby some of the translators had smuggled themselves out to Java for a year and come back and creak. It was creaking along. And then, no. Uh, and actually, only when I thought that this could should be a theme of the book, kind of miscommunication, the language barrier, uh, the more wall than a conduit, to use your own phrase. Um, only then did the book really begin to work. Uh, is translation possible? Well, my Dutch translators certainly like to tease me by saying that, uh, of course, uh, our translation is far more authentic than your original. Which <laughs> is like uh, um, the, uh, the famous uh, remark from Star Trek Seven, where they say, uh, of course, you can't appreciate Shakespeare until you've read him in the original Klingon. <laughs> the biggest laugh of the morning, and it's not even my line. How sad is that? I went upstaged by Klingons at Edinburgh. <laughs> Thank you for your question. David, we're out of time, I'm afraid. Hey, um, okay. I'm afraid we're out of time. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, David will be signing copies of his books. Uh, in the signing tent, which is adjacent to this one. I would just ask, if you don't mind, that you let us escape here first and resist any temptation to buttonhole David in here, given the tight turnaround of events in this venue. But first of all, would you please join me in thanking David Mitchell. Oh, thank you. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk along with a selection of videos.